Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Pause Vibe Podcast. And this week we are all asking ourselves the questions, are we living in sin? And of course the answer is no, unless you're a Veda lady who lives <laughs> lives a life of sin I don't live day. in sin, I live off the South Circular Road. <laughs> I'm a lucky girl. That's Dublin 8, baby, that's not sin. I did live in shame for a while, but now... Hey, like I say, I live in Dublin 8 and it's great. Just like you, Robbie, we're soulmates from Dublin 8 people, by the way. But anyways, the reason why It's a Sin is on all our lips this week is because we have the incredible Nathaniel Hall with us from It's a Sin, the absolute sensation that if you haven't watched it, you've been living under a rock. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nathaniel. Hi, oh, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Can we call you Nathaniel? It's more transgressive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Hi, Nathaniel. Let's do it. I like that. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to see you. You know, you rocked my world during the summer in so many ways. Like, I loved the show, like everybody else. I was very moved, traumatized, re traumatized, traumatized <laughs> again. I cried my way through it. But your story and your personal story, especially, really resonated with me. And when we decided that we were going to try to do a podcast, you were one of the first names on the list, the second page of the list, in fairness. Just kidding, babes. <laughs> just kidding. And I can't believe you're actually here. Dreams can come true and all of that. Welcome, sweetie. I'm obsessed with your bedroom and your dogs. Do you know, what? we've all had a lot of time, haven't we, over the last year? So this is this has had a nice redecoration, as you can see on here. And you're lucky the ceiling is so high that there's room for that sling. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I do live with my parents. They have asked questions, but you know, I just said it was a new style from from America. Yeah, it's not like the old style that your mom has hanging over her bed. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this used to be her bed. I live. Yeah, this used to be her bedroom. So oh, we're gonna call this. this episode "It's a Sling." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I love it. Oh my god! La 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 <laughs> la. Do you get? sick of people lying at you because I'm sick of people lying at me like TV researchers lie at me and I have to lie back just to try and get us the gig the benefit the benefit of the show or coming out in a pandemic is that no one stops me in the street because no one can see who you are because everyone's wearing a face mask yeah and when it came out the only place we could go was the supermarket so like it's not a place that people recognize me I think I mean a few people have said it to me in the street but but not that many online a lot you get a lot of people saying it online so Nathaniel we all know you're from It's a Sin, where you played Ollie Alexander's boyfriend, but um, you actually live with HIV in real life. So um, what we love to get across here is people's stories, and I think you have an amazing story. So uh, we'd love if you could share with us around 10 minutes your the Nathaniel Hall HIV story. Wow, okay, 10 minutes. I, I'm, not, I'm used to doing like <laughs> a, 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 a two-minute two packaged version for, for radio and podcasts. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I... Uh, grew up in Stockport, which is like a little growth on the bottom of Greater Manchester, a little satellite town. Um, and I was um, a, a straight A student. I was head boy at my school. This is 2002, going back to 2002, 2003. So the world's a much more homophobic place than it is now. I mean, it's not perfect now, but you know, equal marriage wasn't there. The age of consent had only just been lowered here in England to 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 to, e to be equal to heterosexual people. There was no real representation of gay people on you know on TV or in music in the way that you know we have these days. Um, and so so yeah, so led a quite a, 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 as we all do a closeted early life. 
uh, but realised I was gay at school, uh, didn't come out because Section 28, the legislation that stopped schools talking about homosexuality here in, in the UK, um, was, was still in place, was repealed in 2003, which is when I left school. So growing up in that environment, knowing I'm different, you know, I was a drama kid, I was, you know, ticked all the boxes, you know, had loads of girl, girlfriends at school. And then actually secretly, I did have my first secret uh, gay liaison. I was head boy and it was with the deputy head boy. And how um, is your head? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. You know, living up, living up to my name at an early age. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, it was all very secretive and, 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 and done in secret. And, and he took, you know, he was on his own journey. It took years to come out. I burst out of the closet at 16. You know, I was like, I was ready. Model, was singer, that... actress, here she comes. Triple yeah, exactly. I'd love to have met you then. <laughs> and um, and I, I, it was that summer, so 2003, that I um, I met someone. So I was waiting. I was actually waiting for the, the suit for my prom. I mean, I was desperate. I wanted to go to the prom, you know, doing everybody's talking about Jamie, not in drag, but go with a boy on my arm. Uh -huh. And it was that kind of thing. And it just never was going to happen. There was too much shame and internalized homophobia and, and real homophobia going on. Mm -hmm. So um, I was I, I thought, what can I do to make a statement? So I, I went in a cream tuxedo rather than, the, you know, the usual black that everyone was wearing. Um, and it was late. It wasn't it not been delivered to the hire shop. So I was waiting around in Stockport, sort of thinking, like feeling depressed that such a place could exist. At Stockport's quite nice now, but it wasn't back then. And I met this guy on a bench. He was older than me, 10, ten years older than me. Um, and he was he was clearly gay, like he was visibly gay. And it was like he was this exotic creature. He was everything that I knew I wanted to be or to become or that I was becoming. And so we hit it off and, and we went on some dates. He took me to Canal Street, you know, start going out and then um, eventually, you know, went went to, have, to his to have sex, the gay holy grail, you know, my first time um, having full penetrative sex. Um, and he reached for a gay safer sex pack that you can get in bars here in Manchester. And so I thought, that's great. We don't have to have that conversation. Um, but he put the condoms to one side and, you know, I stopped him and I said, you know, I wasn't stupid. I might have grown up under Section 28, but, you know, I knew about STIs and that kind of thing. Um, and I said, maybe we should use a condom. And he said, it's all right. I've just been tested for everything. It's fine. And so I just trusted him because he was older than me. And he was, it was, you know, it was my, it was my rite of passage. And, uh -huh. and then, uh, and I, I trusted him and, and, as a result, I, you know, I contracted HIV. So I found out I got very sick when I was on a family holiday uh, that summer. Uh, me and him sort of ended it relatively quickly. My mum and dad found out and, you know, too old, all that stuff. Um, How old, if you don't mind me asking? He was 10 years older, so he was 26. I'm 15 years older than my husband, so I'm squirming in my seat <laughs> over here. I'm older than my mother-in-law. <laughs> Sorry right. for interrupting, um, but I'm just curious. That's okay. Um, and so, so yeah, I got very, very sick. Um, I had a very, very powerful seroconversion. Um, I lost a stone in weight. Um, I was misdiagnosed because I didn't, you know, I went to a, a GP and they, they didn't ask any questions about my sexuality. My mum was sat next to me, you know, all that stuff. That's awful, um, but it's also a brilliant drag name. <laughs> misdiagnosed. misdiagnosed. Yeah, <laughs> it is a great name. And it's a good name. I've never thought of that one. Uh -huh. um, uh, and so yeah, so I, I started college in that in that autumn, and um, you know started to get other symptoms downstairs, you know, mm -hmm. a, a whole plethora of them, and so took myself to the the GUM clinic as they used to be called, uh -huh. um, and uh, quite a traumatizing experience, you know, in a hospital, 
uh, big hospital sort of navigating all that at that, that young age, being asked if I wanted the HIV test and refusing. Um, and then, but they obviously suspected and continued to sort of try and gently persuade me to take the test. And eventually I did. And I found out two weeks before my 17th birthday my that goodness. I was HIV positive. Um, so that was very powerful. Um, I describe it as being hit like a truck, mm-hmm. you know, like it was a huge thing, but actually, what I did was very British. I just minimised it. I just went, that thing's happened, it's fine, these things happen, get on with life. And that's what I did for the most part. I just got on with my life. I went to college, I, you know, I went to university, I, went, I always wanted to travel the world and I did that. And I had relationships and on the surface I was, you know, an out and proud gay man. I was kind of quite vocal, you know, I'd go mm-hmm. to Pride, I'd work with charities. But behind closed doors, my life was doing something completely opposite and it was spiraling out of control. So that in 2017, by this point, I was in a very toxic relationship. There was a real dependency on alcohol and drugs within that relationship as well. Um, I'd sort of isolated myself from my family, from my friends, um, through all that. And I realized, you know, I sort of caught myself in the mirror two days after a house party, like, what the hell's going on? Like, who are you anymore? I just didn't recognise who I was. Um, and my career also had not really gone in the way that I like, wanted it to. And so at that moment, I just vowed that I had to change it. I had to change this thing. I'd held this secret from everyone in my life, pretty much, apart from partners. You know, I tried to tell my family for for nearly 15 years at that point. So I I forced my hand. I make theatre and I, off, I work with other people to tell their own stories and I'm often telling them to get up on stage and you know and be bold and be brave and speak their truth to power and um, I thought I need to do it myself so um, I started planning to make um, a show uh, called First Time it got commissioned and at that point I was like crap I need to tell my family so then I had to tell them so I wrote a letter to my family um, and you know the response was was very loving and supportive and accepting and then went on to make the show so in 2018 it premiered in South Manchester for World AIDS Day um, we had a huge party we did rapid HIV testing we did some outreach wow. work um, were your family there they were yeah and it's a warts and all show I mean like it starts with me you know you know in a worse for wear state and I there's, there's really frank talk about you know um, you know, some of the you know, different aspects of gay life, going to sex saunas, you know, and all that sort of stuff was in there because it really felt at this point I needed to remove that shame from my life and, and, and work towards pride. So, so yeah, so we did, we did the show and my story just got picked up at that point. Um, I was, uh, BuzzFeed News got, uh, did an amazing uh, uh, article, it actually won an award. Um, and it was, I was trending higher than Jennifer Aniston's bangs at one point. Uh, and then, which is quite a claim to fame. That is the and biggest then, claim to fame. We're going to put that in our notes for this podcast, just so yeah. everyone knows. Bigger than Jennifer Aniston's bangs. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, yeah, and then the BBC News, and then it was shared across the world like on the Spanish BBC network. And it was a really a, quite an intense time because we had to put on an extra show. I was on the BBC breakfast couch. I was sort of catapulted. Yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, around that time, World AIDS Day, everyone's looking for the story mm-hmm. and this story of, you know, it can just be that one time, mm-hmm. you know, and also the impact that 
that a diagnosis can have mm-hmm. in terms of a particularly compounding internalized homophobia and mm-hmm. having to work through that. So yeah, the show then went on tour. Uh, we went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2019, um, which it did really well. Um, it got, I think it's like 82 out of a possible 90 stars, which is, I mean, it blows my mind. Um, it did so, so well. Um, and then we were on tour and, until Miss Rona came on the scene. So um, <laughs> wow. we put that, the show on pause um, and then the show itself is going back on tour. Uh, in the autumn bring it to ireland um, yeah yes well ireland. i'd love to bring it to ireland i'd love to bring it we'll to make ireland. that happen we can do that pause by productions pro- we're on that yeah. great great i'll put you in touch with my producer great <laughs> no i'll put I'm... you in touch with mine he's sitting <laughs> over there um i want to say something if that's okay because i'm like i have chills up and down my spine because i feel like we're very similar people in a way because i lived in the closet for 10 years without telling my family or anybody of, of my close friends very few people and but i also came out in a super theatrical way by writing a song and releasing a record on world aids day at the end of 2019 and just like you corona shut down all my plans oh. festivals gigs everything that that i was working towards just went away and that's why we're here. But I just wanted you to know that like, I can relate so much to that and I find that so exciting. I think when people really use their creativity, whatever the universe is giving them to celebrate who they are and to free themselves from shame, that is like the most exciting work, mm-hmm. artwork to me. So I really want to see your show and know more about it. And I suggest all of our listeners check it out. Now, Daniel, I have a really big question because the great thing, like what we really want to get across in this podcast is showing people stories, but also like reactions. And you, I think you wrote a letter to your parents before you were staging this show and they went to see the show, as you said, warts and all. Did the lived experience live up to your internalized fear of what was going to happen? <laughs> it never does, does it? We're such drama queens inside. <laughs> we're like, we are. We're like, I, you know, when I came, I talk about like when I came out being a disappointment because my mum just told me. She was just like, we need to have a chat. Are you gay? And I was like, well, I think I'm bisexual <laughs> because, uh, you know, at that point I couldn't, I didn't have any other option other than a family, you know, the, the get married, have kids, uh-huh. you know, no narrative. It blew my mind. There was no other narrative to follow than that. So I said I was bisexual, but, you know, it was quite underwhelming. And, you know, all the the lead up to that point, and I'm, I don't want to diminish what it feels like because it is enormous. It feels huge. But, you know, you, you imagine all sorts of scenarios, but actually the internalized process of that is often I mean, I've been very lucky that it's the the reality has been the total opposite of that. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, that's, you know, some people, obviously, they get a really awful negative reaction from the people that they love. And it's it, it's uh, really, really terrible. I think for lots of people, though, even if you don't get that, we shouldn't underplay what it feels like, because the feel and the fear before is real, whether oh the gosh. threat whether the threat that the perceived threat is real mm-hmm. the fear is real and the anxiety is real so so yeah i mean i, I told my family with a letter because i you know i tried so many times to tell them i always got stuck in my throat you know and it just never came out so i wrote this letter um and i posted it and then you know i had to wait you know about a day or so to start and then the first text message came because i've got three siblings and my mom and dad and then my mom and dad came, my mom came over not my dad my mom came over and she was stood on the front door with a house plant i was like what have you got a house plant for <laughs> she's like well i was wandering around tesco and i, I wanted to bring you something but i didn't know what <laughs> Oh. That's here's a cactus. Oh. I mean, I don't think the house plant has survived. Some people ask me that, and I'm like, oh, I wasn't very good at looking after things back then, but I'm much better now. I've improved. Look at your room; it's beautiful. You definitely are. <laughs> and she must be proud as 
hunch because although we haven't in Ireland seen um, first time your show, we've all seen you on It's a Sin. How how did you get on that journey? Like, what was the whole process like for you? Well, do you know what? I knew about It's a Sin a while ago because Russell splits his time, the writer, between Wales, where he's from, and Manchester because Red Productions is based in Manchester. And I knew on the on the on you know on the grapevine that he was writing this new thing. It was called Boys at the time, and I'd heard and I spoke to my agent. I was like, "This is happening. I've you know." got to get involved and then um it was around the time i was making the show so when we did before we went to edinburgh i got in touch with russell i mean i just messaged him on instagram which is like really unprofessional i'm doing it right now (laughs) (laughs) but it worked it it worked and i just said hi you know look you're writing this thing and i'm you know i've written this thing about my experience and you know and it, it was just like a sort of reaching out and he was like let's go for a coffee so in one of the most bizarre moments of my life i was found myself sat opposite one of my screenwriting heroes in in cafe nero on king's cross street in manchester and and just sort of he was just like just tell me your story he sort of got a one he just got like a a one one one-on-one show in um cafe nero and he was he was writing the role of colin within the show at that point and he was obviously colin gets it from his first time so it was about him doing that research and he was really honest with me about that he was like that's why we're meeting but then at the end of it he was like oh you know there might be a role so um let's you know get get your agent to get in touch with the producer and then the producer came to see my show and then they invited me to audition from that um and i i actually auditioned for uh the role of gregory gloria and um and uh, donald uh, but they swapped the roles over because donald was actually originally from scotland but then gregory was from scotland and donald was from manchester okay well i'm so glad it happened that way but one little thing is just bothering me about that story is that after you met russell um and he heard your story i hope now he realizes that he should have offered you the part straight away you know <laughs> because of inclusion yeah, sure. because of respect you can't really take on subject matter like that and not include the community like i feel so lucky as a member of the HIV positive community that you're there in that show to represent us. But I would have very different feelings about that show if you hadn't been. Yeah, I think that was that was it. And we talked a little bit about that once we were in production, uh, me and Russ and, and the producers. And it was, you know, it, Russell was really clear. He's like, you you had to audition. You needed to get in on your merits for this. And he's totally right. I, I, I did. But you, you're also right in saying that actually inclusion is really important. And, you know, there might be other people living with HIV within that cast. It was a huge cast. I don't know. But are there any of them out though, Nathan? No, I'm 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 the only one who can't shut up about it. Exactly. Um, So so, you know, I think it was it was a win-win because it means. I mean, in in other aspects, you know, all the all the queer characters in that show were played by LGBTQ people. So really great uh, representation, and you can see that and you can feel that as a as a as a gay actor. I don't often feel very well not not welcome but comfortable on sets, uh, television sets are actually quite a macho environment, you know, um, and actually that just felt with a gay director, a gay writer, you know, it was such a fun, safe space to be who you are. You could see the chemistry, Nathaniel, and it just really portrayed so well. And I think that's what made the tragic elements of it, even that all more tragic, because you could see really see the love between all the characters. But yeah. Nathaniel, we could speak about this all day, but now stay on the line because speaking of chemistry <laughs> or geology, <laughs> I should bring in Connor Anderson, who is 
a beautiful, beautiful friend of mine. We know each other a few years. So, Connor, we talk about our HRV stories here. I know a little bit about your story, yeah. but I want all the listeners to because um, I have just before uh, you came, I reread your article in Mask.Life by Stephen Maloney. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read it and you want to hear queer stories uh, in Ireland, mm-hmm. it's an amazing resource. I recommend everyone read it. But you were one of the story showcase and I was just blown away about how honest you talked about your HIV journey and mm. the, the places that we don't normally go to. Um. So, so yeah. So, I I guess I'd start... I mean... I'm I'm obviously, as you can tell, not from this. I'm, I'm <laughs> unfortunately an American. So I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Uh, I was a weird kid. Um, I was deeply closeted. I knew I was gay, I think, from maybe like five or six. I think I saw like an episode of... No, it was like an episode of like some MTV show with like shirtless boys. And I was like watching and I was like, I am having a different reaction to this than I'm supposed to be having. <laughs> I had the same feeling when I like... I have a bunch of cousins and we watched, you know, it, uh, Sound of Music. And I remember the song with Liesl and the, the you're 16 going on 17. I was like sitting there watching it with all my girl cousins thinking like, I'm not having the proper reaction to this this song. I'm not projecting on the right character. Like there's something going on here. You were singing <laughs> like, along with them. I know. Well, I, was like, I was like, anyway. You were talking so, about inches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am um, 16 going on 17. I know. Wow. I know. I know. Um, so, so yeah. So I, so I knew I was gay from a very young age and I also knew that I was never going to tell anyone about it. So I, I was sort of a weird kid. I did theater as well, just amateur. But yeah, so I, I, I sort of went along my way. I was very deeply closeted. And then I started hooking up with guys when I was 18. And I was um, one of those like Adam for Adam queens before Grindr, like those like the websites you'd have to go to. And so, you know, I started doing that and protection wasn't really a thing. I just was sort of too closeted and and and, and deeply sort of ashamed to, 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 to ask for it. And then uh, I moved to Los Angeles for college and it was in LA that I was introduced to uh, a, a little person named Tina. So I started hooking up with guys anonymously online um, and using crystal meth. Which, if you are a listener who's not familiar, crystal meth is a sex drug, and lots of gay men use it. Maybe not lots, but actually, yes, lots. Um, it's a big problem in 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 sort of our communities. And I, I distinctly remember the first time I did it, because like I was also drinking a lot, because I just spoiler alert, I am now sober for several years. Congratulations! Um, thank you. Yeah, well <laughs> um, done, babe. But I was like, I was drinking a lot, and so like I'd also like I'd done, I used cocaine, and I was like, this is fun. And then I, I I met with this guy who was a doctor in West Hollywood. I can't remember I can ne- I can't remember his screen name anymore, but it was something like Hole Smasher sixty nine or you know something you know romantic sounds romantic <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. And it was fun. And I remember he introduced me to it, and he was like, okay, we can do this, meaning like smoke crystal meth and have sex. But he said you have to promise me you're not going to get addicted and you're not getting HIV. And I was 18, I think I had driven there drunk. And I was like, no worries, like let's do this thing. Um, and then fast forward four years and I was both. So that's how it went. I would, I was ostensibly straight. Um, I would get very drunk at parties and people would, it was, it, was, it was funny, people wouldn't, I remember it as people like accusing me of being gay, but actually what it was is people were just like, oh, you're gay, right? Like you're openly gay. And I'd be like, ugh. What do you mean? Like really angry and, and get in fights, but you know, everyone 
kind of new. And then, you know, the secret double life I had was that I would go anonymously hook up with these guys. And, you know, so I cut my teeth in the PNP bathhouses of, of Los Angeles, of like Hollywood. And, and PNP and starts for party and play party for and all play. the new girls. Sorry, party and play, <laughs> um, which is, you know, the, the code that you use on, on the apps. And I was going along my merry way, um, having fun, I thought. And then I was 21. It was April of 2010. And I was in college in my junior year. And my hair started falling out. Um, and I would be in the dorm and like in the dorm showers. And I would run my hands through my hair and it would come out in clumps. It was visibly thinning. Like you could see my scalp through my skin. And the, my first response was that I just drank through it because I was like, this is, <laughs> I can't I can't deal with this. I don't know what this is. This is too scary. So just get drunk. Um, and then eventually I like, it, it was, it had been going on for like weeks or maybe a month. And it was like, the hair was all over my bed. I was clogging the showers in the dorms. There was like an announcement being like, if you're shaving in the shower, like you can't shave in the shower, it's clogging the shower, all this hair. And I went to the on-campus clinic and I said, just like test me for everything. I don't care. I need to know what this is. And they did. And then I got an email saying, we have your results. You can come back. And this was several days later. And I was drinking. It was right towards the end of the semester. It was either before spring break or before the, the summer break. And I was drinking with my friends in her um, dorm room on campus. And I got the email. And it said, come on over. We have your results. And she said, oh, don't worry. If it's a bad result, they call you first to like ease you into it. And I was like, great. Thank God. My secret is safe. Nothing's wrong with me. And I go and they sit me down and they say, well, you tested negative for gonorrhea. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> One <They're> down. Like, <laughs> you tested negative for syphilis. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then you tested negative for chlamydia. And I go, oh, thank God. And they say, but um, we are going to need to refer you to Huntington State Hospital or state whatever it is, um, because you did test positive for HIV. And I went completely cold and I remember they went through the checklist um they're like you have to go here here's your appointment you have to do this you know here's what you need to know I remember they asked uh before we let you go you have to tell us if you're planning to hurt yourself um afterwards and I said no and they're like great uh we'll see you in a week <laughs> have fun or whatever and um I remember I sort of walked stone face out to my car and I called I think it was my aunt I called first Actually, I, I lied. I didn't call anyone. I just started like wailing in my car because I thought that my life was over. Um, because, I mean, Nathaniel mentioned this. I thought like, like I knew I was gay. I knew I didn't like having sex with women. I knew I didn't find women sexually attractive like at all. And I knew that I was really, really intensely sexually attracted to men. And but like I, I couldn't be that. I like needed to have a family because like I was the el I'm the eldest son. I was like I can't disappoint my parents. I don't even know, really know exactly where all of this came from because it's not like I come from this terribly traditional family. I mean, my family, you know, Seattle's a quite liberal city. My family's very liberal, very progressive. Never a, a shadow of homophobia at home. But I was like convinced that the only way I could sort of prove my worth as a person was be was to find a wife and have kids. Like that was it. I had to do that as the eldest son. I had to like make my dad proud or something. And so like I, I was sitting in my car wailing and then I think I called my aunt and told her and I was like I don't know how I'm going to tell my parents and she talked me through it and then I called my mother and I said because I was like I have to get on health insurance because again this is in America I had to tell them so that I could get the medication because it's not like here like you know here in ACT UP meetings sometimes we'll talk about oh you know how difficult it is to at St. James or the Gaiman's Health Clinic and I'm very into that but like it should be better but there's this weird internal part of me that's like in the United States my medication costs $3,000 a month mm -hmm. without insurance. 
Yeah, you know? I'm just going to jump in and say I have friends living with yeah. HIV in the States as well, and it can be an absolute shitemare, for yeah. want of a better yeah. word. And I know of someone who sadly ended their own life yeah. because their health insurance yep. had run out and they didn't want to be yep. a burden to the people that they love. And it's one yep. of the hardest, saddest stories that I've ever heard. Yeah. So it, we really are so lucky here. We really are with yeah. our access to, to medication. Doesn't mean we can't expect the best uh, yeah. and we should demand the best, yeah. but still we are lucky. So there's a part that's like, you know, I, okay, yeah, I don't like waiting two hours in the in St. James Hospital, but like my testing's free, my medication's free. And um, that was really a revelation. It was, I mean, this was, this was a major issue for me because I, and later on, I, I, I was in between jobs and I was too old to still me on my parents' health insurance. And I had to file for something called COBRA, which is like state extension of your employer's health insurance. And I actually had to go um, off my medication for several months. Hi, Connor, just for context, what year was this? So I was diagnosed with HIV in 2010. Okay. So I was I was 21 years old. Um, and I used to think that I was, you know, I was, I was used to be very proud of being the youngest person I knew personally to have been diagnosed with HIV. But then, you know, Mom, bitch, me and you together, <laughs> you both, both 21 had year your, old. You both had your ass handed to I you know. today by Nathan. I'm, Jesus. I'm just, I've just been, been <laughs> shamed. But anyway, so anyway. <laughs> your so, trauma. So, is better than ours. So, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Nathaniel, were you 16 going on 17? Yes! I was 16 going on 17. Oh, I live. <laughs> the cabaret oh. version of my show. Icon. These are a few of my favorite things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whiskers HIV, on kittens. Medications and whiskers <laughs> on kittens, exactly. Okay, so this is traumatic. So you're yeah. going to HIV diagnosis. And then the shit show that is the American healthcare yeah. system. Like, you can't even just get a handle of HIV. Yeah. You have to get a handle on access, fundamental access access yeah. to health care yeah. that, that saves you. So um, how did you get on then once you had to so, stay off? I mean, it's yes. funny. In, in preparation for this, I was thinking about this time and there's so many little stories that I'm re sort of re-recalling. So so my reaction, because again, I was, a, I was an undiagnosed alcoholic at the time and I was deeply closeted, was to drink my way through it. So I was blackout drunk for like two weeks straight. I had to drop a class because I, God, I, remember I showed up to this class stinking of alcohol and I was, I thought nothing was wrong. Anyway, um, so I drank through it. Um, it was bad. I drove drunk. I like ran into things. I gashed myself open on things. You know, I was, I was not a, I was not a fun drunk. And that goes on. And then I was um, getting in my car. The semester had ended. I was getting in my car and I was thinking, well, maybe cloning technology will advance far enough in my lifetime that I can just clone a kid and then I'll be fine and that thought bizarrely kind of got me through the drive from Los Angeles to Seattle which is an 18 hour drive by the way yeah so anyway so so it wasn't fun and then I, I, I go home I keep drinking I fly to Germany I do a summer research project in Germany I come home I go back to LA I drive back to LA I show up and I find that like the four people there were four people i told in confidence about my status because again i was closeted i was closeted by my status didn't want anyone to know and i found that two of them had told everyone behind my back so i dealt with my entire senior year of college this sort of paranoia of like i didn't know who had who knew anymore because they had told people and then of course i was a blackout drinker so like i was telling people i would like corner people at house parties and tearfully tell them like i had been diagnosed with hiv and then i don't remember who i told um we've so all had those dmcs <laughs> honestly my poor friends yeah so it was it was it was messy and then this goes on by the way i i didn't get sober till i was 27 so this goes on for like six more years um of blackout drinking um and crystal meth use and you know sex parties and all of this stuff um so i like I, I i go back to seattle i bounce around i waste most of my 20s being a, a a raging alcoholic and and crystal meth addict i alienate friends blackout drunk you do something stupid you're terrified with guilt and and fear and shame 
start to drink again to alleviate the fear and guilt and shame. And it's just this horrific, horrific cycle. And so I, I'd been to rehab twice and like I went to rehab in the, for the second time in LA. So in LA, I got sober. I had a couple more slips. In LA is where I sort of met like gay community for the first time. I fully came out. I was bi for a little while because I was kind of easing my, you know, wanted to have the backup. Yeah. So anyway, so I get sober in LA, it sticks. And then I um like over the, so as this unpacking this like, lifetime of trauma because like I foreclosed on so many parts of my future when I was 21 years old I thought that it was just that was you know that was it I was gonna die I mean you know it's like I it's this funny thing where you're like yeah I guess I'll just be dead by 25 that was my plan for most of my 20s so so yeah so I get sober I did it it worked um I sponsor people and then um I applied for a master's program in Ireland um still sober stayed sober um ran for graduate officer of the students union at my school UCD got it and then ran for president and so I just finished up my term as president of UCDSU so I'm the first oh my god the first openly HIV positive um, I'm getting SU shivers hearing that Connor that's oh amazing did you hear that folks <laughs> students union president who's out and pause pause and proud and there's like tens of thousands of people in UCD like it's a high 30, enough 30,000 yeah it's Tur a big yeah it's a big one and can I ask because there are people living with HIV who are like I don't want to come out about my status because it may affect my professional how did you find that how did you kind of reconcile you know the, this potential of people may think sure. less of us for living with HIV versus your reality well I mean the job I was in the only way for them to get rid of me would be to impeach me and I was pretty sure they weren't going to impeach me over a mass.life article so I was kind of like you know um and and I, it, it's kind of a difficult a difficult thing because although I've talked about this kind of, you know, lifetime of trauma. I was extremely lucky because the crucial thing is I maintained familial support through the entire thing and I had money. So although there is this sort of like horrible dark trauma and it was incredibly painful, um, I mean, horrifying in so many ways that I, that I think back on, it gets more horrifying the older I, and happier I get, kind of what I put myself through. Like I was never on the street. I was never hungry. I was never in serious risk of losing access to, to healthcare. Um, and you know and obviously in the rooms of aa and 12 step i know many people who have been like that um who have been at that risk and th and they're still sober um it's you can do it but like you know i'm ultimately still one of the lucky ones because i'm a white man with family and you know so don't uh, undersell that but i mean for me it was a decision it, i like i'm in the position to be open about it and to be a public figure with it it's um, one of those things that actually we don't know for sure if it's going to impact it negatively at all and it might impact it positively exactly and that's my impression mm -hmm. of your story is exactly. that i think that platform definitely helped because you've nothing else going for you right exactly everything going for me. you it can helps. sing kiss by <laughs> I prince can. Uh, do a little bit for us just Mom, a karaoke karaoke on, just a little bit be rich to be my girl don't have to be cool like okay, i said nothing anyway, going for you nothing going for me no 16 going on 17. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nathan's so, gonna do 16 going on 17. Yeah. Just a little bit. Come on. Just a little bit. Does it does it work over Zoom? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am 16 going on 17. I don't know anymore. Words. Inches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. I love it. Um, it's a sling, baby. It's, it's a, a sling. sling. Uh, this is our gonna be uh, a new concept for our stage performance. Sling out. Sling out. Love it. Um, <laughs> so. Connor, 21 diagnosed. I was 21 I was diagnosed. And Daniel, you were 16, 16 going on 17 diagnosed. I was a very young 35. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this because thanks to It's a Sin, you know, we'll put it back in the media and you know, they really wanted us to chat about it, us HIV activists and people living with HIV to hear the experience now. 
and what you played the character you played during the time that you played it is very very different to our lived experience now and Nathaniel as someone who wasn't who didn't really live through the AIDS pandemic of the 80s and 90s in the UK how did how did you find revisiting that time do you know what I I, I it's it's interesting because I think although I didn't live through that that era through the 80s and 90s as as the age I am now as an adult I you know I was I still grew lived through it I grew up I was born in 1986 so I did live through that and and I think the impact of that I hadn't really understood because the the, the impact of it isn't direct but the the systemic and institutionalized homophobia that we see in our society you know was compounded by the HIV AIDS crisis because because gay men were were vilified and scapegoated for the for the the crisis and there was an indifference as well particularly you know uh, even more so greater in America than than here Um, and so for me it was it it was a real honor to to be able to put that on screen because certainly from a UK perspective, we haven't actually had a TV drama that focuses on that. We've had HIV and AIDS stories told, you know, Mark Fowler in EastEnders, for, for instance, on BBC One, 15 years of a straight white man. And that was actually a radical choice. You know, he came into EastEnders in the, what, the early 90s and to go actually, pro- producers were going, no, we're going to actually challenge what people think about this disease. But actually, you know, the story of the impact on the gay community. And I have friends who lost, you know, three, four, five friends and lovers, sometimes more. And it was really evident to me when we, um, when the show came out and the, and the reaction that I had and the messages I was getting that for a whole section of our community, a lost generation, as it were, that were left behind, after, you know, after the, that early wave of the epidemic, this was really still an open wound. It was still fresh and raw, you know, we're talking 30 to 40 years later, because there hasn't been any, there isn't a national memorial. We have World AIDS Day, but it's not really recognised by the state, you know, and I think for gay men particularly, it was so important. It was so important to see their lives reflected back and not just the tragedy of it as well the celebration of life and love and being young and in love and stupid and doing silly things and yeah so I think it was it was it was really powerful that's why it was so powerful I think for lots of people that was so beautifully said I absolutely love it and I just want to reiterate what you said about you know we haven't really had any healing we haven't had any proper support we haven't had things like significant memorials to the the people that we lost and the narrative and the stigma hasn't changed and i feel like it's it's really the responsibility of the government in your country and in ours to spend some money some time and more importantly some creative thought on how Mm. we're going to change that narrative for people living with hiv we don't want to be the outcasts of society and it should be them that's ashamed not us ashamed that we've been left with this legacy he here here and talking about legacy because nathaniel i actually just uh, have want to have a little discussion about this because i I watched it to sin and i'm so incredibly happy i did it really shows the humanity behind the lives of people living with hiv and those who lost their life to aids but i found it quite i didn't want to watch it initially because the only representation that i see of hiv in the media is white gay 
men dying of AIDS. But unfortunately, it's the only way that po the populace is getting its information a lot of the time of HIV. And let's talk about legacy. As someone who was born in 1991 and got a diagnosis in 2012, like no one was talking about HIV and I didn't experience all the trauma of this. But yeah, I felt when I got a diagnosis at 21, suddenly I was being referred to as Freddie Mercury as Rock Goodson, people I didn't even know about. And for me, we need more contemporary voices of what is living with HIV today. And this is why I think this podcast and you coming on now, Nathaniel, is so powerful. And my last point, because I'm over I'm taking her news to my guest, I'm so happy that you actually, as someone living with HIV, was part of that cast because the, you filled a gap that wasn't really told in It's a Sin. You, as someone li with the lived experience, the media ate up because I Googled you beforehand and there's like eight pages of you in the media. It's ridiculous, <laughs> honestly. It, I have my own knowledge panel on Google. That's how much information there is. It's, I can't, I can't get my head around it. I'm just this kid from Sutport and there's all that out there. It's fantastic, Sorry. though. It's the best part of this whole story for me. And I'm not just saying that. Like Robbie, I felt a l just a little bit let down at the end of It's a Sin that there was nothing to really share our story now. To talk about yeah. you equals you and to talk about where we're at in the golden age of HIV medication. That hurt my feelings a bit as a, mm. a pause person. And But you cleaned up that mess you personally <laughs> single-handedly cleaned up that mess because then i got into you your story your press your background you legitimized everything yeah. for me if you hadn't oh. been there i would have struggled to say anything as glowing or to feel those glowing feelings about the performances because you were what I needed but actually I need more like you and more people like you and we need people like you to be celebrated offered good gigs given modeling contracts endorsements <laughs> for real you know where are our endorsements where's the HIVIP energy you are a role model for us girl and Nathan I'm just so delighted that you joined us Thank you so much. Uh, do you know what you you what you said? Other people have expressed to me as well. And there is something about when you've you've got lived experience of something, and then that story is taken away or told by someone else, even if it's told really respectfully <laughs> and really beautifully, it feel it can it can really feel alienating or uncomfortable. And sort of, I try and dismantle where that comes from and my own ego around that. And you know, that actually having allies telling our stories is also really important because sometimes we're too exhausted to do it ourselves. But I totally get that and feel that like in my bones. And you know, when just going back to the, the, the stuff around the, the, the stories around HIV and who gets, who gets airtime, you know, I'm still, you know, you're a white gay man, you know, my story, and I'm also really aware when I sort of talk about my first time. Are you? That... Someone cleaned the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was a Latin woman. <laughs> got the affectations of a Latin woman. <laughs> you um, got the body, yaddy, yaddy, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I, you know, I'm really aware as well. I talk about being my first time. That it, that that also others people that it wasn't their first time, yeah. and it sort of in unintentionally stigmatizes people who maybe were, you know, sleeping with multiple partners or you know, going to baby, you were sixteen. Hey. I think yeah. it's. 16 we can all expect that it was your almost first time at least yeah, yeah. and and i think you know there's there are like you say there are so many other stories you know in the mm -hmm. uk i think it's only it's around 50 percent of people live with hiv uh, uh, men who have sex with men you know a third of, of people are, are women globally hiv disproportionately affects women and girls it's a women and girls issue and a yeah. poverty issue so i mean one of the things i've been doing um so whilst my show 
first time was on hold I wanted to do some of that work I, you know I've been given a platform which is a real honor so um three other people living with HIV have come on board um to make three short films which are coming out in the autumn in the lead up to World AIDS Day telling their own stories we've got a, a, a gay man who lived through the 80s um, uh, um a heterosexual man who's an ex-injecting drug user telling his story um of uh, of using drugs and homelessness um and then um a black British woman telling telling her story and and how the shame and the, the the of a diagnosis in the early 90s and the the media focus on gay men meant had a real impact on her accessing treatment um, in the long run so amazing stories and and yeah just want to amplify those other voices and there's so many others so many rich stories yeah. in in HIV that we can share and tell them we should do and you will, and you are, and that's so great. And stories change the world. They do. They change the hearts and minds of the people. But let's talk about um, just kind of the history of It's a Sin, because, you know, because things are so stigmatized, um, people didn't really talk about it. People tried to hide from it. Even LGBT organizations tried to hide away because they thought it was stigmatizing towards them. And we're actually seeing that with chemsex now. Mm-hmm. Even in our community, they don't want to touch it because they think it's stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. But yet it's something we have to talk about. How do you think we can do this what 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 should we do and i suppose there may be people listening who really relate to your story connor would Mm. you have any like advice or top tips so uh, i mean uh, my the personal the way that i personally tackle it is i i talk in specifics about what i did i used to smoke crystal meth out of a pipe and then have sex there there is an incredible stigma around that drug in particular i mean god i remember i was in some stupid like gay facebook group for like gay memes or something and like you would constantly see jokes about like oh she's a tweaker and i'm like you know that these jokes like if there are people dealing with addiction issues even if they're not necessarily dealing with addiction issues people who use this drug and maybe are using in a problematic way seeing these jokes it's treated as so out there as so extreme and so unthinkable i'm like you know that the men in the there are men in this group who use crystal as a sex drug they're seeing your jokes and they're seeing your comments and they're thinking oh this is another venue that i can't speak about this because there is actually an incredible silence around it and and for me when i was diagnosed i mean i was diagnosed in the crystal scene and then i was so messed up about disclosing that one of the only places I felt safe having sex after being diagnosed was if I was using crystal meth because when you're smoking crack nobody's asking about your status it was one of the things that, that drew me even further in because it, first of all the, the effect of the drug gets rid of the shame gets rid of the, the anxiety and then going in I knew I wasn't going to have to navigate disclosure I wasn't going to have to get, have to navigate someone giving me a weird reaction or like someone ye- like yelling at me because I, I had I like met a guy at a party and then we made out and then he like sort of looked at me funny and I was like, aren't you something? And then he walked away and then I, like he left threatening voicemails on my on my phone. Like, Would you like to apologize, Robbie? Around disclosure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, it was it, Robbie. It was me, <laughs> <top> twist. <laughs> and so it draws, I mean, it draws you into this the, to the scene. And, and like the thing that's crazy to me is that people do cocaine and they're like, oh, crystal meth, what a disgusting, like how, I'm like, girl, they're both amphetamines. I don't know what to tell you. Like, um, so that's that's how I, I do it. I talk openly and frankly about it and about the way that I used to drink and the way that I used to do drugs um, and the fact that I don't anymore. And I don't think that people should stop using drugs. Drinking's fun. I love drinking. That's why I can't do it. I love it too much, you know? <laughs> like, it's not that I hate alcohol. I love alcohol. I'm not, I, I'm not a teetotaler. I'm not on a crusade. I think that, like, just with HIV and with stigma, like, the way to combat it is to speak openly about it and to show that, like, I'm 
a normal, relatively charming human being. I'm not some kind of like in a, in sort of there is sort of a similar uh, sort of image and and HIV positive people like the image of HIV positive people to me in the popular consciousness seems so stuck in like 1985 mm-hmm. of these like skeletal figures like dying in hospitals and there's a similar image about people who use crystal meth as a drug. It's like they're they're like poor and scraggly and gap toothed and and w- they're sort of monstrous in a way and it's not true. You know, not to be like oh, it's, it's this is funny. I'm not like defend. I don't defending. It's just like people people have sex. People do drugs. People drink irresponsibly, and like we can either address that in a way that's helpful or we can shame and stigmatize people which drives people further into silence and it makes it harder to get help silence is the worst it equals death it it does equal like (laughs) and that's why i say stories change the world and that's why i'm so grateful that you shared that story and i think we can all learn from that let's not hide from chem sex or drug use in our community in the queer community i should say and just in society as a whole and let's fight for proper resources yeah. for people who may need uh, support going well, through absolutely. this as well because there's very little in absolutely. Ireland and that's all our commitment and that's yep. on pride as a protest and yep. this is one of the things we need to protest yep. so thank you so much and I hope all our listeners got so much from today I'm going to re-listen to this I know it's our own podcast <laughs> I'm going to re-listen to this so many times not just to get the listenership up but because I'm genuinely I, I, I know there was so much happening here that I probably missed up on stuff that blew my mind so I just want to thank you too from the bottom of my heart but as we always say we always like to leave our podcast on a positive note and Nathaniel or how would you like to say it Beta? Nathaniel <laughs> Nathaniel could Nathaniel you, could you please oh, you sound like Liza yeah, <laughs> I love Liza <laughs> oh, girl. you can't see but Nathaniel oh. has the top hat going oh, we God. love it uh, could you leave us a gorgeous positive note to end this beautiful podcast on uh, do you know what I just want to say thank you to Connor because I think your story is remarkable and the you know to to share a story not only about navigating the shame of being gay navigating the shame of hiv but also the shame and stigmatization of you know drugs and alcohol addiction is is incredible and remarkable and it's it's, it's exactly what you just said it's that silence that leads to a culture of shame and fear which stops people accessing support accessing services and i think you know i always talk about like pride and you know and I was thought I was proud as in my 20s and I was a proud gay man and actually there was still lots of shame in parts of my life and behind closed doors I think lots of us are still struggling with shame and I have compassion for that I have so much compassion you know we know that in uh, instances of drug use and alcohol use are higher in our in our community and and it's about us supporting each other to go are you making this choice because you want to or is it because something else is going on there's an anxiety and shame that's that, that is problematic or difficult for you and let's open that conversation and be kind and caring to one another and that, that's that's all we can ask for from our community and from people outside our community to understand that that being gay doesn't mean we're broken we live and grow up in a homophobic world which makes life more difficult for us that is a beautiful way to end our show so I just want to say thank you again thank you Nathan thank you, too. Thank you so much gorgeous I also want to point out that Connor is a ginger so not only <laughs> is he dealing with the stigma of a HIV yeah. diagnosis and a drug addiction and alcoholism? He actually is a redhead and looks a little bit like a very masculine Ellen DeGeneres, if that's oh not an oxymoron. A sexy one. A sexy one. <laughs> anyway, he's hot. Check him out. Check him out. It's time for us to say goodbye. So long. Farewell. Farewell. <laughs> I'll be the same. Good night. <laughs>
night. Good night. Good night. Love you, bitches. Love you. Bye. Hey, if you like today's podcast, please leave five stars and a positive review. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram on Pause Vibe Pod. Oh, 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 o